Father, would you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of your Son? Would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might behold wondrous things in your word, namely Christ, his saving work, and what it means for some of the very concrete ways that we live today. Lord, by your spirit, apply these words to our hearts and change our lives so that we might represent Christ faithfully in this world and rest in him continually. We pray in his name. Amen. Paint two eyes, make them cry. Paint two lips, make them lie. And you're painting the portrait of a fool. Anybody know this song? Two and a half minutes of classic country magic by Conway Twitty. Right? Portrait of a fool. Paint one heart, make it untrue. Paint one soul, make it blue. And you're painting the portrait of a fool. The chorus goes, there are some things that look so familiar. Strange what the resemblance can be. And now as I look in the mirror, I know, I know the fool you are painting is me. We come to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19 this morning, and as we come to this passage, we find three portraits, as it were, painted before us. There are three depictions of a fool here, and the purpose of these portraits is to protect us from becoming one of these types of a fool, to guard us from eventually seeing these kinds of fools when we look in the mirror, or if that's already what we see These portraits are seeking to give us wisdom to repent and turn from our folly because these portraits in our passage show us that these fools we're seeing here are all in a dire state and that if they don't get out, they'll one day meet with disaster. And the Lord would keep us from that. So let's listen to him now. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence, let's listen with joy to the word of our God, through the pen of Solomon, Proverbs 6, 1 through 19. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer, gathers her food in harvest, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, 
winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breeds out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, as we've been making our way slowly through Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, we've been walking through this series of 10 addresses. These 10 addresses were originally Solomon the king addressing his crown prince of a son, preparing him to rule and reign himself one day. And so he's been trying to uh, equip his son with and exhort his son to wisdom and understanding and discretion, as well as warning him against folly and being a simpleton and being wicked. But then we've also noted that Solomon and his son have assumed a measure of anonymity here so that these addresses might be used more universally among all of us as God's people. These addresses are given here in order to equip all of us as God's own children and to exhort all of us who belong to Christ so that we might live as wise citizens of our Father's eternal kingdom. And this morning, this address before us shows us what this this wisdom we're being beckoned to. It shows us, it's showing us what it looks like in some very concrete ways, right? Derek Kidner uh, once said that wisdom is godliness in working clothes, right? It's godliness made extremely practical and concrete. And just so, this passage here shows us godliness in the very practical realms of our finances and our work and in our life together as God's covenant people, and all so that we might be protected from the peril that folly in these areas will inevitably bring into our lives if we go down that path. So our big idea here is that we ought to procure wisdom's protection from folly's plight, and to offer this protection, you're given here wisdom for your coin, wisdom for your calling, and wisdom for your community. First, we see here wisdom for your coin, that is wisdom for your, your money, your finances, your wealth, your resources, and these verses describe a, a, a very particular kind of situation that, that really is not all that uncommon at all, even for us still today. Uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth. So just initially here we're seeing this portrait is depicting some hypothetical future situation wherein the son has entered into this commitment. This commitment of putting up security for his neighbor or giving his pledge for a stranger. That is, he's become the guarantor for someone else's debt. And today we often call this co-signing. And what this is, is that when someone might take out a loan or go into some kind of debt, if the person or entity providing the loan, for whatever reason, doesn't find this potential debtor to be completely trustworthy, if, 
if there's been some financial irresponsibility in their history, if a potential debtor just doesn't seem to make enough money to be able to keep up with the payments, if for whatever reason they find the potential debtor to be too much of a risk to just give them this loan outright, loaners will often allow for someone else to offer themselves as a co-signer. Another person who has maybe better credit or them, uh, has more income or better financial history or whatever, they're able to put up security or pledge or act as a guarantor for this person's debt so that if the debtor defaults, the loaner will have someone else that they can go to to make good on the debt so they're not at a total loss there. Perhaps we should note that co-signing might not be absolutely morally prohibited in the Bible in every case. However, Proverbs does repeatedly warn against acting as a guarantor for someone else's debt. Because when you assume this kind of responsibility, you're taking on all the potential liabilities for a debt, but with very little control and none of the benefits. Right? It's, it's, it's just an extremely risky move. Solomon's saying it's not wise, it's extremely risky because if the debtor in some way defaults on their debt, if for, if for some reason they just can't pay it, if they you know, take the money and skip town, or if they have every intention of paying it, but they, they die, or just due to some unfortunate providence fail to pay their debt, the debt will then go to the cosigner, and that happens today, even still. That happens statistically about 40% of the time, which means that two out of five times, if you cosign, you're acting as a guarantor for a person and they fail to pay their debt, you're, get, you're going to get left with having to pay for it. And if you don't, or you're not able to, if you don't have the money on hand in order to do it, well, you're going to have to go on paying for it for the foreseeable future. You're jeopardizing your future, your finances, your family's well-being and provision. You incur all sorts of liabilities here, but with none of the benefits. So Solomon says, this is just not wise to do. And so really, by implication here, Solomon is saying, hey, it'd be better for you not to do this, to not put up security for your neighbor, to give a pledge for a stranger. It's not wise, but in this portrait, in this hypothetical situation here, it's actually too late for that. Okay, the son has already given his word, and so Solomon is telling him what to do in that situation. Verse 3, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Right? He's saying, if you've co-signed You've put yourself in a potentially dire situation. You've placed your lot in someone else's hand. You've needlessly jeopardized your own provision and that of your family. And so you need to get out of this. And there's two kind of demeanors prescribed here in this. There's a kind of urgency as well as a humility prescribed here. There's obviously an urgency. He says, go, hasten, plead urgently with your neighbor. He goes as far to say, give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber, save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. He says, get out of this. Don't rest until you're out. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go to your neighbor now and get this resolved. This is urgent. This is serious. You're in danger here. But then there's also a humility prescribed. This is not as evident in the, the ESV, which is the translation I'm reading from. Uh, most other, if you have another translation, it probably is a little more explicit here. The ESV uses this, this word hasten to translate the Hebrew word, but in most other translations, you'll see the Hebrew word there translated as humble yourself. The word literally means to, to trample yourself down or to prostrate yourself before someone, which certainly denotes a kind of urgency. 
but it nonetheless emphasizes a, a kind of humility, a lowering of yourself before another. And you can see why. If you've given your word in a situation like this, and you've got to walk it back, well, that can be a humiliating thing, can't it? Right? However, Solomon says it's a necessary humiliation. You're, you're in trouble here. You, you need to humble yourself, eat your words, go before your neighbor, prostrate. If you need to act like a beggar to get out of this, do it. He even compares the, the cosigner to an animal caught in a, a hunter's trap. Right? The portrait painted here has, a, has an animal caught in a trap. I don't know if you've ever seen these, but um, if, if you ever go on YouTube... Uh, which I'm not sure I'd recommend, uh, but there's a, a kind of popular and common sort of video you might come across on YouTube that will show various animals caught in bad situations, right? Going to humans in order to ask for help. You can really go down a rabbit trail here. If you search for this, you're going to find a lot of videos, and some of them are like 45 minutes long. Um, I looked it up this last week, and it's, it's just replete with you know, various situations of animals coming to humans in dire situations, asking for help, you'll see baby elephants. I watch some of these baby elephants caught in ditches, and they're just crying out. And humans come with an, excava an excavator and free them from this, this ditch, this hole they're caught. And you'll see um, a deer with its head caught in a, like a styrofoam cooler. And it, this man in a field comes and <laughs> pulls its head out. You see a dog with its head caught in a jar. Uh, and, and people come and set it free. You'll, you'll see a leopard with its paw caught in some sort of trap, and it comes to this person very trepidatiously, uh, very cautiously, very humbly, and, 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 and it comes to this person, and, and the person sets it free. And, and when you look at videos like this, if you do, you're going to see something of the kind of situation you'll be in if you act as a, as a, a guarantor for someone else's debt, and you'll see something of the kind of demeanor being prescribed here by Solomon. He's saying, if you've given a pledge like this, you're like an animal caught in a trap. And so you need to go urgently, humbly, go to this person and act like one of those pathetic, pleading, desperate animals. Generally, don't do this in the first place if you can help it. Don't get caught in the trap. But if you find yourself in this trap, don't rest. Free yourself from folly's plight by humbling yourself and getting out of this with urgency. I know, very well might be kind of stepping in it here when I talk like this to a room full of Americans. Right? We really don't like being told what to do when it comes to our own money. In our, in our culture, a person's finances, a person's, it's just viewed as being a very private matter. Our spending habits, our savings, our debts, our financial situations are most often as seen as, as being nobody else's business, thank you very much. And what, with respect for churches and church leaders being viewed with a great deal of maybe potentially unprecedented low esteem, I imagine some of you might be looking at me right now and saying, what business is this of yours, man? I, who are you to talk to me about my own money, right? But, you know, that's just the thing, is that the Proverbs and the Bible as a whole does not actually view your money as being your money. Uh, Proverbs, and, and really the Bible as a whole, views your money as not actually belonging to you ultimately, but belonging to God. In Exodus 19.5, the Lord says, the whole earth is mine. It all belongs to me. 
Job 41.11, the Lord reiterates, saying, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. Psalm 24.1 says in adoration, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Right? The, the Bible will show us again and again that, that you are not your own. And, 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 and what you often view as your own is not your own. Rather, you and everything seemingly in your possession actually belongs to the God who created and sustains and provides it all for you. Rather than owners of our money and possessions, the Bible will actually portray us as being stewards, those put in temporary charge of what ultimately belongs to another, namely the sovereign God of the universe. Particularly for Christians. We actually belong and everything we have belongs to the Lord in a in a particularly deep and personal way. Right? Exodus 19.5, I just read a moment ago, it tells the Lord, that the Lord tells his people that you know, the whole earth belongs to him, but his people are his uniquely treasured possession even among all the things and peoples of the earth. Right? That is to say, as objects of the Lord's redemption, we belong to him in an exceedingly profound and special way, just as he belongs to us and gives himself to us in a profound and special way. And the New Testament will go on to reiterate this reality, speaking in, in even more startling terms. 1 Corinthians 7.23 will tell us, you were bought with a price, do not become bondservants of men. Right? Romans 6.1 will tell us that, that as Christians, we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We belong to him. We are his. We, we are his, because he's the one who has redeemed us and purchased us out of slavery to sin, right? In the cross, he gave himself utterly for us so that we might be set free from our slavery to sin and instead be given utterly to him. That's our identity, our reality. That's the truest thing about us. We belong to Christ. We and everything we have all belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. This includes our finances. I know it's difficult. Right? Martin Luther once said that the last thing to be converted in a person is his wallet. And yet the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ and his all-encompassing salvation demands that we withhold nothing from him. Which means that our money is not actually our money, it's Christ's money. And if it's Christ's money, then... We are actually stewards of what ultimately belongs to him, and we are therefore not free to do whatever we like with his money. And so when he comes to us and he says to us, it's not wise, it's not good stewardship for you to put up security for your neighbor, we ought to take him seriously. And I know something of how difficult that can be in, in real life. I don't think Solomon is... is he wouldn't be saying this if there wasn't a real likelihood of his son being put in this kind of situation one day, right? His son is, is he's going to be growing up into a very comfortable financial situation as king, okay? That's, and when someone finds themselves in an, an extremely comfortable financial situation like that, you can just expect people to come to you with these kinds of requests asking you to put up for security for them, to act as a pledge for them, or, or to co-sign for them, whatever else. And when that happens, let's just think about this for a moment. It would not feel good to just say no, would it? 
right? It, that would feel stingy. It would feel selfish. It would feel ungenerous. Here's someone asking for help in their financial situation. Often someone you care about, and you're saying no. It doesn't seem generous. Often in these kinds of situations, if you say no, you'll be accused of being stingy and ungenerous and all that. And to be clear, the Bible's old, Proverbs in particular, commends and commands generosity among God's people. Part of, part of living a good and wise life, according to the book of Proverbs, involves being incredibly open-handed with your wealth, giving to the poor, giving to those in need. And in fact, it will go as far to depict those who are not generous with their wealth as being foolish and wicked and not favored by God. Being generous is good and commended and commanded and so we might think that putting up security for someone is the right thing to do then. That's a generous thing. But Solomon is telling us, in all reality, putting up security for your neighbor may feel like generosity, but more often than not, it's actually more like gambling. It's more like gambling because it's putting yourself and what God has given you to steward in a needlessly, extremely risky position. And so it's generally not wise. It's typically not good stewardship. We have to be generous, but, but we don't gamble. So if someone's asking you to do this, and you're in a situation where you can help your neighbor by gifting them the money or whatever else you need to, to you know, in whatever other way you can help, Get creative, think outside the box, think about how you might be generous to them, but, but don't gamble. Christ's money, by acting as a guarantor, it's a bad bet. This is wisdom for your coin, from the pen of Solomon, from God our Father. Next, though, look with me at wisdom for your calling. And here in, in verses 6 to 11, Solomon is painting a portrait of a, another kind of fool, and this type of fool is known as the sluggard. And Proverbs, is, it, it'll speak to the issue of co-signing a lot. It'll come back to that again and again. And it'll come back to the sluggard again and again and his laziness. And here he shows something of the, the danger of laziness and, and amusing and absurd. Uh, gives us an amusing and absurd remedy. He tells the, the sluggard to go to school and the teacher at the school is an ant. He says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So it's obvious here the sluggard is lazy. I love how the NLT translates that word uh, sluggard as, as lazy bones. Go to the ant, you lazy bones. Uh, the CSB calls him a slacker. In other words, this is, this is painting a portrait of a man who is idle, who's sluggish, who's slothful. He neglects his duties. He's irresponsible. He loves to lay around and sleep, but it's like he's allergic to work. Right? Proverbs 26, 14 says of him, as a door turns on its hinges, so, a sluggard, so does a sluggard on his bed. In other words, the only work he's getting done today is just turning over in his bed. And people seriously hate having sluggards work with them or for them. Proverbs 10.26 says, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, as a sluggard to those who send him. In other words, much to the regret of those who hire him, the sluggard is not going to get your job done. 
several times in, in the Proverbs, we'll see how creative and industrious a, a sluggard can be in order to avoid working. Proverbs twenty two thirteen says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside, I could be killed in the streets. Right? In other words, he'll find any excuse he can to avoid going to work. He's pathetic. And in our text here, we will see that eventually, due to his folly, poverty and want will come upon him violently, like an armed, violent thief. Poverty is going to come upon this sluggard and bring him to ruin. Folly's plight will come upon the sluggard in the form of poverty and want. And as the Lord would protect us from folly's plight here, he prescribes a remedy, go to the ant. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. It might be a good idea to take this literally. If if you find yourself as a person struggles with laziness, very practical application, just sometime this week, go outside, find an ant, and just observe it for a while. Seriously. Just, just observe it, follow it around, be curious about it, consider it, think about it. What do you notice? What do you see? One thing you'll see is that a ha- an ant hardly ever, if ever, sits still even for a moment. It's always on task. It's a man on a mission. And this is actually in the, the feminine here. Perhaps we should say it's an ant on assignment. Keep the alliteration going there. She's got a job to do. She's going to do it. She's about her business, and next to nothing will stand in her way. My hunch is is that there are some of us in this room who really need to hear this, because if we have a proclivity towards some kind of imbalance when it comes to work, it would be toward laziness. But then I have a hunch also that, that there are others of us in this room who might be tempted to use passages like this as an excuse to, to actually overwork. Because we love our jobs, we love productivity, we love being effective, we love our income or whatever. Perhaps we love those things a little too much. And so it's worth pointing out here that that Solomon's rebuke for the sluggard's love of sleep and slumber is not an all-out rejection for rest. Right? Remember that, that the book of Proverbs, it's a book written in the midst of the Old Covenant community, a community which actually required a full day of rest in seven for all its members. And this pattern of one full day of rest in seven that they embodied was a pattern actually written into the created order from Genesis 1 and 2 onward, where the the, the Lord himself demonstrated working six days and resting one. He exemplified this for us in his creating work, and then he commissioned humanity to be like himself and do what he did. In other words, there's a certain rhythm of work and rest written into the fabric of creation that we would be wise to embody and live into. And that that pattern involves working hard and resting well. You might do well to, to consider and contemplate which you're most likely to neglect and then consider in light of that how these verses might more particularly apply to you. But for those of us who, who are more tempted toward laziness, Solomon has some very clear instruction here. He tells us, he tells us something of what we learned from the ant here. The ant here obviously works hard as we've seen, but in her hard work, there's some particular characteristics to praise and prescribe. The first is this. It's her diligence. Be diligent. Right? The, the ant works hard without having any chief officer or ruler. In other words, 
she doesn't need anybody nagging her to get her work done. Right? The, the ant doesn't need to be micromanaged. She does not need someone constantly directing her and telling her what to do. She has an inner motivation to labor and work. She's disciplined and diligent in her work without having to be told what to do. I remember I had to figure this out, how to work like this when we were first starting the church. I mean, it was late 2015. We were sent from our then church in, in Columbus to come here and plant, and I was receiving a, I was receiving a small salary. I was getting paid, and I had this monster of a task ahead of me, so much to do. I was struggling to even know where to start, and in the midst of all this, for the first time in my life, I had, I had no boss, right? I had no, no one supervising me, giving me directions, asking me to do certain tasks, and I had to figure out how to work hard and stay on task without any direction or instruction or guidance. I, I began to use certain tools and accountability measures to, to help me in this endeavor, things I still use to this day. And perhaps if you're self-employed or you plan on starting your own business or starting a farm or, or something along those lines one day, perhaps you, you know, you're a, a stay-at-home mom who's got her fair share of work, no one prescribing certain tasks or jobs, if you're in any sort of situation like that, well, being a diligent, disciplined, inner-motivated person is an essential quality, and this is what you see in the ant. Perhaps you're someone who, maybe you do work for someone else. You're at a job that you're content with and happy with, and you do have someone, you know, in some measure, in some respect, telling you what you need to do when you need to do it. Well, this is still a very important quality for you to learn, because here's the thing. If your boss sees you working diligently and with discipline and inner motivation, your boss knows that, you know, they don't need to micromanage you. Your boss doesn't need to constantly give you direction. Your boss sees you anticipating tasks and being proactive and, and not needing to ask a million questions every time you've been given a project. You just get the job done with minimal supervision and direction. I'm telling you, that's probably going to work out well for you. If you're that kind of person, you're, you know, you're probably the, the least likely person to lose your job when layoffs come. You're probably the most likely person to get raises or promotions when those come. In other words, just people who work hard and diligently typically have more job security and do better in their job. Usually a good work ethic paves a good path for you in your work. So we see this here. It's good to be diligent. And next, we're seeing the ant that the ant thinks ahead. The ant thinks ahead. She she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. The ant doesn't just think about this present moment. The ant doesn't just think about right now. She's preparing for the season to come. She looks ahead and she prepares and gathers what she needs now for later. And just so in our work ethic, we're, we're being encouraged here to think ahead, to look ahead, to consider how we might work now in order to ensure provision and preparation in the future. Contrast, if all we think about is right now, we're going to be very limited in our motivation to work. If all we're thinking about is right now, well, we might be diligent and work hard if we feel like it. But I think we all know that we don't always feel like it. Right now, we might feel tired or distracted or lazy. 
Right now, we might feel drained or stale or bored or annoyed with our work. But if we're able to look past right now and remember that we have a future we're to be preparing for, if we're able to think ahead, we'll be much better off in the long run. If we're diligent and we think ahead. And then lastly, we serve Christ in our work. Here's, listen, here's why Christians ought to work hard and be diligent and think ahead. Here's the inner motivation provided for us by the word of God. It's in Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's the underlying motivation for our diligence and discipline, for our working heartily and hard. It's this. The one we are serving in everything we do is the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, that that includes your work here to, to serve the church. People would generally maybe apply that here, but listen, that includes your work in various areas. Let's, let's, let's toss this dualistic thinking that serving at church is sacred while all other work is, is secular. Toss that. Everything you do, Paul says here, ought to be done as sacred and sanctified for the Lord and not for men. He says, whatever you do, that, that includes everything that you do. That includes mowing your lawn and doing the dishes. That includes making spreadsheets and making sales. That includes taking phone calls and answering emails. That includes dealing with difficult customers and breaking hard news to a patient. That includes tucking kids in at night and folding laundry. It includes everything we do. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, with the inner motivation of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, you're you're thinking farther ahead than just the next quarter or year or five years or retirement. Paul says here, we're to do this with eternity in mind because it's from the Lord Jesus Christ that you will receive your inheritance as reward. Serve Christ with this reality in mind. You've got an imperishable, eternal rest and inheritance coming your way because of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, work hard knowing that Christ has condescended to you in order to serve you and expend himself for you to give himself for you in his work on the cross so that you would receive a heavenly inheritance in him christ has come he's died he's risen to give you a future beyond your wildest imagination therefore work hard work diligently with gratitude all in service to him because listen he gave himself in humble service for you Look at his work on the cross where he secured your heavenly inheritance. Look at his work on the cross where he gave himself for you and respond to that by worship, with the worship of working hard for his name's sake in whatever you do. That's wisdom for your calling. Next and last here, we see wisdom for your community. And here Solomon is, is again writing in the context of the, the covenant people of God and he's giving a portrait of a particular kind of fool, sometimes found within that community. He's painting the the portrait of what he says here, a wicked person, someone who's seeking to threaten the unity and peace of God's people. God's people have been created and redeemed to live in unity and peace with one another. And this fool is, is trying to thwart that purpose. 
it describes him in verse 12 as a worthless person, a wicked man. And it says that he goes about with crooked speech. So he goes about spreading gossip and slander and lies. His, his speech is not straight, it's crooked, it's not truthful. It contains falsities. It might at times contain partial truths and half-truths, but he's not ultimately interested in the truth. He's interested in doing damage, and the truth is only useful to him insofar as it fulfills that purpose. He even goes on to describe some of his then nonverbal communication. Verse 13, he winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. So with everything from his mouth to his eyes to his feet to his fingers, he's He's devoting himself to communicating lies and half-truths and doing damage in the community. And verse 14 shows what the source of this behavior actually is. With perverted heart, he devises evil. Out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. His heart is the source of it. That's where all this is coming from. He's got a perverse and villainous heart. And verse 14 also describes the aim of, the, of, of these plans purposed in his perverse heart. It says to, to continually sow discord. Here's what this fool of a wicked person is seeking to do. He's seeking to divide, to promote quarreling, to sow seeds of division and disunity and dissension. He's trying to start conflict and contention. He's seeking strife and schism in the people of God. His mouth is not used as an instrument of communication, communicating truth or encouragement. He's not trying to help. He's not trying to build others up. He's not trying to promote peace. Instead, he's seeking to tear others down and do harm to the community. And verse 15 shows the plight that will eventually befall him. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Right, James 3 will tell us that the tongue is like a small fire capable of starting an enormous blaze that destroys everything in its path. Right, the tongue is like one of those little campfires we hear about every year that sometimes just gets out of control and starts enormous wildfires that destroy everything in their paths. The tongue, our speech, in other words, is capable of doing this kind of damage. You know, we, we, we learn that nursery rhyme when we're kids. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Proverbs 6 says that's simply not true. Words destroy lives and relationships and churches and families. But when we set ourselves on a course of destroying with our words, it's only so long until we get burned ourselves. Eventually, the kinds of calamity we instigate will come back on our own heads. In a moment, it says, those who sow division can themselves be broken beyond healing. And here's why. It's because God hates it. He sees this when it occurs, and he abhors it. Therefore, he will see that justice comes to those who seek to harm the unity and peace that he's done so much to create. He will see to it that those who try to destroy the unity of God's people will reap what they sow and themselves be torn apart. Verses 16 to 19 speak to this. They show 
They show us God's perspective on the matter. They give us a list of six things that the Lord hates and abhors. Verse 16 says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Now, that's, that's a literary device that we're going to see throughout Proverbs, particularly in chapter 30. Chapter 30, you see passages like verse 15. There are three things that are never satisfied, four that never say enough. Right? Proverbs 13, 18, three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. There's several other instances of this, but, but here we see this done with a list of six and seven. And what lists like this are trying to do is highlight the last item listed. Right? And, and those lists just mentioned, the fourth item is being highlighted. And this list here, the seventh item is being highlighted for us. The subject focused on is the last item. So the Lord, he hates all these things, but he's highlighting the seventh thing. The last thing is the focus of his hatred in this particular passage. So Solomon lists them out. The Lord hates haughty eyes, someone who just looks down pridefully on others, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste or evil, a false witness who breeds out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. All of those things matter. The Lord hates them all. They should all be avoided. But he's highlighting here, particularly, one who sows discord among brothers. That's the focus of this, this passage here. That, the Lord says, makes him nauseous. He hates it. He, that's why this person is headed for a bad end. That's why he's headed for calamity. This portrait portrays this kind of fool headed for disaster because the Lord hates this. And so Solomon is showing us this in an effort to protect us. He's showing us this so that we might not become these kinds of fools ourselves, so that this portrait would not become what we eventually see when we look in the mirror, because we're all capable of this. And also so that when we come across this fool in our own lives, we, we'll, we'll steer clear of him. We'll avoid being this kind of person and avoid being around this kind of person because this kind of person is headed for disaster. The kind of discord and destruction he purposes and perpetuates will inevitably come back on his own head. And you don't want to be anywhere near him when it does. In fact, we're particularly instructed in the New Covenant to handle this kind of situation, to, to redemptively remove this kind of person from our fellowship. If one like this should make his way into our fellowship as a, as a church, which can happen, probably all seen it happen before. It's not impossible. It's not even a rarity. It happens. It happens so much so that Paul will address this very matter specifically in Titus 3.10, saying, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. You see, the, the Bible takes sowing discord and division among God's people with the utmost seriousness. And if you think about it for just a moment, you can see why. The reason the Lord hates certain things is because he loves certain things. And you can see what he loves by what he hates. And what he loves is obvious as we look at this here and what's stated more positively throughout the Bible. God loves the unity and peace of his people. Several texts make this extremely apparent. Psalm 133.1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. 
Ephesians 4.3, be eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. 1 Peter 3.8, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. God's word continually exhorts us to cultivate peace and continually warns us against division because God values peace and harmony among us as his people. He loves it so much that he paid a dear cost to create it. It's in peace and unity among God's people was part of the purpose of the cross of Christ. See in Ephesians 2 that our peace with one another as the people of God has actually been purchased with the blood of the Son of God. You see, Christian unity is a precious blessing paid for with precious blood. Christ died on the cross, first and foremost, to give us peace with God, to reconcile us to our, our God and Father, but secondarily, as we, are, as we remind ourselves of every week in the passing of the peace, the reconciliation accomplished in the cross of Christ also involves a horizontal peace, a horizontal reconciliation. God wanted to create a unified people to testify to his saving power in the way that they love one another and care for one another and sympathize with one another, and rejoice with one another, and weep with one another, and forgive one another. He wanted to create and form one people whose unity testifies to the one true gospel of the one true God. And therefore, we're, we're called here to do everything in our power to cultivate unity and peace among ourselves and to protect it, to strive, to do nothing that would threaten it and compromise it. Because it's a precious gift purchased at a precious cost. It's wisdom for our community. Friends, perhaps you've seen this this morning as we've looked at wisdom for our coin, our callings, our community. That wisdom in these areas ultimately find their source and summit in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've seen, it's Christ. It's in Christ that we find reason to steward our finances and resources well. It's in Christ that we find cause and motivation to work hard with diligence. And it's in his work that we find purchase, our unity, and therefore that we're given every motivation to maintain it as the people of God. And this is all because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ is for us wisdom from God. It's in Jesus and his saving work that we find wisdom. It's in Jesus and his saving work that we find power to walk in his wisdom. Therefore, friends, if we would steward our resources well for his glory, we would work hard in our callings with diligence. If we would strive to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace among the people of God, In other words, if we would be spared looking in the mirror and seeing one of these portraits of a fool looking back at us, we must look to Christ and follow in his ways. Let's pray together. Father, seal this word upon our hearts. As we come to the table, may we be reminded of the precious blood that has been spilled on our behalf, of the the, the cost that you have paid to redeem us and bring us into your paths of wisdom. May we be reminded of that and may we be strengthened by this meal and this time together 
so that we might more faithfully walk the paths of wisdom that you've redeemed us to. Help us to live in wisdom with our, our, our finances and money. Help us to live in wisdom with our, our work, with our, our callings, with our various missions in life. And help us to walk in wisdom in our community, promoting peace and doing whatever we can in our strength that you give us. Maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace, all for the sake and glory of the name of Jesus, in whose name we ask. Amen. Amen.